we've had a lot of uh, opportunity this morning to think about the bigness of God. How magnificent, how otherworldly, transcendent He is. And uh, a lot of us find that moving when we think about reflecting, connect with God in that kind of way. Uh, maybe you're at a place, though, today where you need a little bit more of the eminence, the closeness, the personal contact with God. So wherever you are right now, let me just encourage you to whisper a prayer. Lord, meet with me. Lord, speak to me. Lord, give me ears to hear, a mind to comprehend, and a will that responds. Amen? Amen. Well, uh, I know that I'm in a minority. How many of you actually watch Lost? Yeah, okay. Looks like 25, I'm going to say 30% because one more hand just went up. But, uh, which is stunning to me because it's like one of the leading shows that are out there. But if you don't get in on it early on, and I know a lot of you haven't because I've talked about this in in times past, uh, it's just hard to move into the storyline at some other point, which is exactly why I'm talking about it. Because a lot of people find God and the story of God and the experience of God hard to sometimes figure out, how do I get in on that when that is such a long-running story? How do I make sense of all that when there are so many subplots to the big plot, so many characters, so many scenarios that are being played out? In the television series Lost, This past Thursday, they wrapped up the season with a two-hour-long season closer. Holy cow. It was awesome. Sorry you missed it. But uh, (laughs) now I've got to wait a whole year or more until they, they come back and show what's next. And yes, it raised so many more questions as it answered a lot of them. But again, that is so much like God and the community of faith. And the scriptures, just when you began to make sense of a few things and get a few answers, and then all of a sudden you become aware of there are so many more questions out there. Holy cow. So many more characters, so many more scenarios to unpack and to figure out. So, for example, with Lost, the big story is that Oceanic Flight 815 flies from Australia to America and crashes somewhere in between, out in the middle of nowhere, And the survivors end up on an uncharted island. Will they ever get off? How will all that turn out? That's kind of like the big story. But then you have all these characters that have their own little story. So it's like the big tree trunk story of the flight that crashed with survivors on an uncharted island. But then you have all these branches shooting off of various characters that have various subplots and scenarios Playing out. Take one of the lead characters, a guy named Jack. We see him in the present as one of the survivors who becomes kind of the de facto leader of those survivors. But occasionally, 
the program will take you into a flashback and you'll see some of his past. You'll see some of his relationship and some of his experience with his parents and with his former wife and his uh, medical practice as a surgeon, etc. And then you'll be back in the present. You'll see life on the island and they're contending with all this weird stuff that's going on. But then occasionally, they'll not be flashbacks. They'll be flash forwards. And you'll see things that are part of his future. In my mind, it is fascinating storytelling. And again, it parallels the way God and the Scriptures and the history of humanity plays out. There's this big tree trunk of the big story that we would call the meta-narrative. And in that big tree trunk, that big meta-narrative story, we have creation. And we're told about how God brought humanity into being. And he did so with uh, men and women being in his image, being image bearers, being like him. And therefore, he creates an entire universe and world that can sustain human life. And then he has all this vegetation and animal life that he creates. And because man is in the image of God, who is a ruler over things, he gives the rule over all of the vegetation and animal life, the things that are part of this world, to man, to oversee, to steward. Well, of course, then there's also a twist in the story where there is a rebellion in paradise. And people turn their back on God. And there is sin and fallenness and brokenness. And God, who is holy, must respond in a just and judging kind of way. And so he says, here's the punishment. As far as our fellowship, our friendship, our relationship goes, it's dead. I will remove my presence from you. That's what condemnation looks like. You don't get to be close to God. But then as the story continues, there's redemption. He begins to prepare and then makes the way to atone for sin and reconcile fallen people Back to himself. That's the big tree trunk, the big meta narrative. I call it his story. Some people call it history. And with that big tree trunk, there are all these branches shooting out with all these subplots, with all these billions of other people and their particular little stories past, present, and even future. Because God gives us glimpses even into the future. In fact, we know a good deal about how this, the overall meta-narrative is going to finish. We know pretty much how that story is going to close, although there's a lot of mystery that's still a part of the whole thing. So, that being said, what are we to make of the Bible and its storytelling? Some people some, will sometimes ask me, Scott, do you... Believe the Bible literally? And my response is always, I do, when the Bible speaks literally. Because you see, the Bible contains multiple literary styles. So, for example, when Jesus says in the New Testament, I am the bread of life. 
I don't literally believe that Jesus is bread. I believe he's using a literary device called metaphor and in so many ways referring to himself as that which nourishes our lives, which sustains our lives, which we must have in our lives if we're going to live. And so as you look throughout the pages of the scripture, you will encounter prose, poetry, you'll encounter some biography, some song, allegory, metaphor. And as you become more familiar with a text, then you begin to see, oh, that's what kind of text, that's what kind of literary style this particular passage represents. It has everything to do with how the meta-narrative begins to make sense to us, which hastens me to say, because the Bible is a number of literary styles, it is not, though, a technical, scientific book. Never intended to be, cannot be. It is a theology book. A theology book helps make sense of God. A science book helps make sense of science and things that are a part of the natural world. They're two different kinds of books. And so if you approach the Bible like you would a science textbook, you're going to have a hard time making your way through some of what is unfolding in the meta narrative because it doesn't fit that kind of genre. Are you with me? Okay, so, so elementary, I know. Okay. So there's a number of atheists these days that have become popular. One of those is Richard Dawkins. And some of you, I think, have read The God Delusion, or at least you read excerpts of his best-selling book. And in that, he makes a lot of uh, uh, contending statements about what's true about atheism and what's false about religious people and about God systems and all that kind of stuff. And he actually comes to a point where he makes this claim. You cannot be an intelligent, scientific thinker and still hold religious beliefs. And I'm like, why not? Why are those mutually exclusive? And the fact of the matter is, there's a significant part of the scientific community that disagrees with that statement. And in fact, there are a number of scientists who are increasingly becoming religious because of science. Because the more they examine the intricacies of this universe and this world and life, the more they see all this tremendous design, many of them are concluding, you know what, there's got to be, got to be a designer with all of this intricate design. And so I disagree with what Dawkins contends, that you cannot be intelligent, you cannot be a scientific thinker and at the same time hold to religious beliefs. Having said all that, though, I recognize that there are a number of problems that fall into scientific categories that some people really wrestle with and grapple with, and it becomes a little bit of a stumbling block to be able to come close to faith, to be able to come close to God, to be able to accept this meta-narrative of what's going on in our world in time and history. And one of those is the problem of miracles, right? You've encountered some people like that. Maybe you're one of those. Someone says the biblical accounts can't be reliable because they contain descriptions of miracles. 
Because miracles, by definition, happen super naturally, outside of what's natural. So they can't be, biblical accounts can't be reliable because they contain descriptions of miracles. In that scientific uh, way of thinking, science has the capacity to measure everything that is natural. That's what it's equipped to do. And if it cannot measure a miracle, then miracles must not exist. That's the conclusion. But, see, the point is, if science is equipped to measure everything that is natural, it cannot make a scientific claim that there is no other cause besides nature. It has never been proven, scientifically, that there are no other causes other than nature. Therefore, you're not making a scientific statement when you say nothing can happen outside of natural causes, you're making a philosophical statement. Whole nother discipline. Are you with me? I see you. Okay. I'm moving on. So, uh, when someone wants to say you cannot uh, call uh, miracles as a credible thing, and therefore the Bible that contains all these mir- miraculous stories is credible because it falls outside of nature, well, science doesn't delve outside of nature. Then you get into philosophy. Then you get into theology. Someone says, there are no other causes but natural causes. Never been scientifically proved. So you have to own a premise ahead of time that says there is no God in order to discount other causes. But if you hold a a premise that there is a God then conceiving of something happening outside of nature or supernaturally is totally logical, totally conceivable. It just depends if you had a presupposition that prevented you from getting there to begin with. Well, there's also the problem of evolution, right? Anybody ever had an evolution discussion and faith? Someone says evolution disproves the Bible. Really? Now, evolution contends that complex life forms have evolved from more simple life forms through natural selection. Okay. I don't have a problem with that. There is a large number of Christians in the world today that have no problem with that understanding, that definition of evolution. It's when you want to take natural selection to the extreme and say that it's responsible, therefore, for everything, every thought you have, every feeling you have, every kind of belief and kind of hardwiring drive that's within you, that's all come because of natural selection. That's where we draw the line and go, there's no way you can prove that. So that all-encompassing Natural selection is a philosophy. It's not science. Because science can't prove that. Therefore, you hasten to the next evolutionary related question and someone says, okay, okay, okay. So what about the differences between evolutionary science 
and creationism. Now, who's not aware that there is a conflict between evolutionists and people that would fall into a category that refer to themselves as creation science? There's a conflict there. Those that hold to creation science contend that all that there is has been created by God in six 24-hour days only a few thousand years ago. Now, that is a problem. That does conflict with a lot of evolutionist theory, hypothesis, claims, which say life has evolved over millions of years. So then you have to say, okay, then how do we look at Genesis chapters 1 and 2, which we're going to do in just a minute. If Genesis chapters 1 and 2 are intended to be science and a scientific kind of explanation of things, then you've got a major conflict with evolution. But if Genesis chapters 1 and 2 are a different kind of literary style rather than strict, literal, scientific information or data, then you're looking at something else. And as I've read the entire Bible several times, and I've been exposed to the multiple literary styles that are within the Bible, it is my conclusion, and I am not alone by any means, it's the conclusion of many, many, many believers and scholars that Genesis chapter 1 and 2 are poetic in nature. And so in a minute, when we read that together, I'm going to invite you to kind of get a sense as you're reading. Does this have the, the rhythmic sense of poetry and song? Or does it have the database sense of science? You read it, you get the sense yourself as we're looking at the text. But let me just give you this little preview. As you know, the creation story is delivered to us in categories of days, right? All this happened and it was the first day. All of this happened and it was the second day. All of this happened and it was the third day, right? When you get to the fourth day, you know what it says? We'll read it in just a minute. It says that on the fourth day, God ordered that there would be days and nights for the purpose of measuring seasons, days, and years. Now, if you're looking at science, does it make sense that someone would say on day four, that's when the category of days and nights and years and so on were created, but you've already, in, in the description of creation, talked about day one, day two, day three. I'm suggesting to you that it is not intending to be scientific, but it is poetic and theological. The purpose being, let's show you what God is like. Let's show you how big, how magnificent, how creative, what a genius God is. Not let's put under a microscope scientifically how creation came to be. Now, it's a lengthy passage. Got your Bible? Can we just kind of sit and soak and enjoy and not go, gee, that's a lot of verses. All right? 
in the beginning. Isn't that a great place to begin? In fact, that's one word in the Hebrew, and if some of you have noticed on the back side of your program where we've given you a little artwork with this series, you're going, what is that weird-looking stuff? That is Hebrew. That is the first word in the first verse of the first chapter of Genesis, Bereshit, which means in the beginning, which is the title of the book in Hebrew, Beginnings. In the beginning, not creation. In the beginning... God. He's first, he's foremost, he's above everything. And it was God who created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Picture of chaos. What kind of God is God? He's the kind of God that moves things from chaos to order, from confusion to clarity, that kind of thing. So God said, let there be light, and there was light, and God saw that the light was good. He separated the light from the darkness, and God called the light day, and He called the darkness night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse between the waters. So there's this big blob of water. Let there be an expanse between the water. Separate the water above from the water below. And God made that expanse and separated the water under the expanse from the water above it, and so it was. And God called the expanse sky. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place and let dry ground appear. And it was so. And God called the dry ground land and the gathered waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it according to their various kinds. And it was so the land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds, the trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds, and God saw that it was good. And it was evening and morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the sky to separate the day from the night. Let them serve as signs to mark seasons and days and years, and let them be lights in the expanse of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so. And God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. God set them in the expanse of the sky to give light on the earth, to govern the day and the night, and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning, the fourth day. Now, I'll just pause there to say, ask yourself along the way, who is God? What is God like? And particularly if you lived in an ancient Near Eastern context where most notions about God, most concepts about God was that there was a whole pantheon of gods and they kind of did battle with each other and they did battle with other powers like the sun and like the moon and like the stars in order to prevail about who would be the chief God and that kind of thing. 
here, the biblical writer is making it very theologically clear. God is not in contention with any of these other entities. He's not doing battle with anything. He is before it all. He is over it all. He created it all. They are not competitors whatsoever. Verse 20, And God said, Let the water teem with living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the sky. So God created the great creatures of the sea and every living and moving thing uh, with which the water teems, according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the water in the seas and let the birds increase on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, Let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, livestock, creatures that move along the ground, and wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. And God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them. And God blessed them and said to them, Now, what kind of God is He? He's a God that blesses. He's a God that provides. He has just surrounded humanity with every kind of needful thing, every kind of vegetation, every kind of animal life, land upon which to live, etc. He has blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth, subdue it, rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And that God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds of the air and all the creatures that move on the ground, everything that has breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw all that he had made. And it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. And God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. Now, again, I suggest to you that what we're hearing and the rhythmic movement of it is poetic and it is a song. We'll get into a little more of the technical, how does mankind come about and so on, later in chapter 2. We'll do, deal with that next week. But the point that uh, I want to highlight for you is that the intent of the text is to reveal to us God. Who is God? Who are we? What is this about that we have the potential and the capacity for relationship? 
Does God look at us favorably or does God look at us with some kind of contempt or some kind of instilled servitude? Yes, work is a part of creation. God worked. He made us where we could work. But life is more than work. And so in creation, not later when the law is given, is Sabbath introduced, at the very point of creation, to highlight how significant and how important human life is to God. Life is not going to be all about work. It's going to be about engaging the fullness of life, and Sabbath is your gift to make use of so that you can engage God in the fullness of life. There's a whole lot more to be said about Sabbath, but you get that at the very beginning. Creation happens by God speaking things into being. This is very, very key, and you'll see this kind of thought throughout the whole narrative of the Bible. That God doesn't have to take hands like humans and craft things. He can speak things into being. And I'm going to say more about that to you in just a second. And at the height of creation, He makes humanity in His image. We are image bearers of God. You learn something of what it's like to know God by every person you ever meet. And that's why there are males and females. It takes all of us collectively to begin to give a glimpse of what God is like. We all bear His image. Now, I want you to move with me to John chapter 1. And we're not going to look at as many verses, okay? So breathe easy. But I want you to see, as we're developing this meta-narrative, this big story, how this plays out. And, of course, you know the Gospel of John happens multiple thousands of years after the writing of Genesis and the story of creation. And in John chapter 1, we have kind of a creation retelling. Verse 1, in the beginning, same opening phrase as Genesis 1. Only in the beginning was the Word. Now remember, how did creation come about? God spoke it all into being. And the Apostle John tells us that speaking things into being, that Word was in fact God Himself, the person of Jesus. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. And so we're introduced to Jesus by the Apostle John as who's not just a Messiah-type figure, not just a Christ-saving kind of figure, but He's God Himself. He's the God who created. He is Creator God. And what is the problem that humanity befell? We'll get more into that into chapter 3 in a couple of weeks. But, of course, there was a rebellion in paradise and in the garden, and, and sin uh, came between man and between uh, God. And so, from that point on, in our condemned state, we had this problem with proximity to God. Is God close? Is God near? Is God far? Is He God removed? And as you begin going through the narratives of Exodus and uh, Leviticus and Deuteronomy, etc., 
God begins to try to draw near to us by what means? By a tabernacle. And there's this big, long, lengthy explanation in the Old Testament about how to construct a tabernacle, which is like this big tent where people would gather together to meet with God. Now, why am I saying all that? Look at verse 14. John chapter 1, verse 14. The Word became flesh and made His, NIV says, dwelling among us. And we have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John wants you to know that the Word, Jesus, is the Creator God who has drawn near to us by tabernacling. That's what the word dwelling, that's translated dwelling in the NIV, is. It's the word tabernacle. You see how the story keeps putting these little nuances along the way for people that get the story, that have been doing the story all along the way, you go, oh, ah. One more passage, okay? Have you got it in you? Can you stay with me? Ephesians chapter 1. We move to the Apostle Paul. And the Apostle Paul is speaking to believers at a church in the city of Ephesus and trying to help them to get this big story, this meta-narrative. And he says to them in verse 3 and following, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms. What kind of God is God? God of blessing, not a God that's looking to slam dunk people. He has blessed us with every blessing in Christ, for He chose us in Christ before the creation of the world. There's a plot twist in the big story. You know how many centuries it took before people got this part of the story? That before creation, when all there was was God, there was in the mind of God, in the heart of God, you. And you propelled God. The thought of you, the concept of you, the anticipation of experiencing you propelled Him into creation. So that He would make all this stuff that we know and that we experience to be able to sustain and to hold our life so that we can know Him and have a relationship with Him. For He chose us in Christ before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in His sight. In love, He predestined us to be adopted as His sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with His pleasure and will to the praise of His glorious grace which He has freely given us in the one He loves In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that He lavished on us all with uh, all wisdom and understanding. And He made known, now get this, He made known to us the mystery, the story of His will according to His good pleasure which He purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. Now, there's a ton of things to unpack in that. I'm not going to do it. I'm just going to highlight a couple of things that relate to the meta-narrative. Before creation, we were chosen to be adopted as sons and daughters of God. 
God has wanted you forever. God has wanted you in relationship with Him before your parents ever drew a breath. You are no accident. You have been pre-creation in the heart of God. God has made known to us this mystery. Through the person of Christ and in the teachings of Paul, as he continues to unfold the story, he allows us to know that nuance of the story. Now, I don't know how people live if they don't know where they are in the story. And so the core issues of life are, who am I? Where am I? What's wrong? Something's wrong here. What's the solution? The biblical meta-narrative answers all those questions. That becomes the foundation, the bedrock upon which our lives make sense. Who am I? I belong to God. Where am I? I live in His creation that He has uh, crafted for me. What's wrong? Evil entered the picture. Kind of blew up the whole uh, picture and plan. And what's the solution? The offspring of Eve. We're told that all the way back at the beginning in Genesis, that the offspring of Eve would crush the head of the serpent who had tempted them, that we're to understand to be the Satan, the Satan, the adversary, which is a foreshadowing of Jesus. The offspring of Eve, who is going to be the solution. That's the story. That's his story. That's our story. So the question is, do you get that? Does that make sense to you? Do you begin to see how that plays out in the way you experience every day? You go, well, I'm not sure I connect all those dots, Scott. Well, let me just highlight it this way. Let's say you have a great job. Let's say you make a boatload of money. You've got some great investments. Uh, you would fit the classification of wealth. And you choose to follow God. A watching world looks at you and all of your wealth and goes, why would that guy follow God when he's got everything that he needs? And by following God, you've made this life declaration. Man doesn't live by wealth alone, by all the things of this world alone. Man has to have God. It's a big, big statement that comes out of your life because you get it. You're in this meta-narrative. You're, that's the big tree trunk. You're one of the branches that come off of that, one of the billions of branches that come off of that. Now, a lot of you have read The Purpose Driven Life by Rick Warren, who's a pastor in California. You may be aware that that book became such a big seller, like 30 million plus copies got sold. Rick Warren became a, an extremely wealthy man. Doesn't often happen with pastor wealth, at least in my experience. So, the point being, he is a multi, multi-millionaire. 
He has, because he's a follower of God, so ordered his life around God, not around his money, that now he has chosen to live off of less than 10% of his entire income. And he gives away more than 90% of his income. It's a reverse tithe kind of thing. Since he made all of his millions of dollars, he still lives in the same modest house that he's been in for like 20 years. He still drives a car that's like 10 years old that preceded all the money that he made. He still, you know, makes lifestyle decisions in keeping with what his life was before all the wealth. And he has used that money in unbelievable, multiplied ways to help the poor, the, the people that suffer from injustice. I could go on and on and on talking about what God has been able to do through Rick Warren's life. My point is, there's a man that gets it. What the story is, where he fits into the story what God's up to with him, and why he has wealth. Wealth is a platform for him to show, hey, look at God. Not me. Look at God. Now, let's go all the way to the other extreme. Let's say that you no longer have your job. You have been hit by the economic hard times that are going on around us right now. You've been unemployed. You've been unemployed for some period of time. You have been just really out there trying to get the new job. You're about to lose your unemployment uh, benefits and your health benefits and stuff like that. And you continue to choose to follow God. Because you get it. And a watching world looks at your life and they go, why in the world would you follow God? He's certainly not blessing you. He's not taking care of you. He hasn't provided you a new job. You're about to lose all your benefits. You may lose your house, all this. I mean, why would you follow a God that doesn't come through for you like that? And the Christ follower says, because life is more than bread alone, than the things that sustain us alone. Life is about me being connected with God. I know He's a good God. And if God is allowing some hard things to happen in my life, I've just come to know. He's blessing me through hard times with character work or reorienting my heart in ways that it need to be reoriented. But, you know, I'm not just looking at my circumstances to figure out if God's good or not. I know God, and I know He's good. And in our poverty, you follow me? We have a platform to help a watching world see who God is and what God is like and to potentially draw their lives. Here's the point. When I live the meta-narrative, when I understand His story and my story and how they intersect, all of my life as a God follower then becomes a platform from which others, a watching world, can see something of what God is like because I'm an image bearer of His. And be drawn toward Him because of what they find in my life. Now, if I don't get the meta narrative, if I don't get the big story, if I don't see how my story fits into that big story, I am as lost as I can be. And if I have wealth, I'll think, well, that's because I deserve it. Some people deserve it, some people don't. Some people can handle it, some people can't. I, I must be able to handle it. Or if I am in poverty, I'll be so lost, I'll think life's unfair, life's unjust, God doesn't care, God's not big enough to do anything about my plight, God probably doesn't exist, and so on. You see how lost you can get if the story's not making sense to you. 
So what do we do with all that? Well, on your connection card, on the back side, the little box that says next steps, I've listed a couple of next steps that might be helpful to you. And one is to familiarize yourself with the story, the big story. And so I'd encourage you to do a fresh reading of Genesis 1 through 11. Now, you can go way beyond that if you want to, but in the next few weeks, that's where I'm headed, and you'll get a little bit ahead of me, and you'll be ready to do a little more connecting with me on some of the talks that we'll be doing here on Sunday. So I'd encourage you to read Genesis 1 through 11. And uh, either preview or review that text and begin to get your heart resonating with the story. Or maybe uh, there's some more thinking you need to do around the whole issue of evolution and science and faith and how they intersect. Um, I'd encourage you to do some reading on that. I've got some resources I could point you to. You check that box and says, that's what I'm going to do. Tell me something to read. I'll point you in the direction of something to read. Just put that on there. Maybe uh, you're, you're coming to grips with the fact that God is at work in your circumstances in a way that you haven't anticipated and you want to be soft and responsive. You know, whatever. Could be 15 different things that you could be responding to God about right now. My point is this. Don't waste what God's been seeking to speak into your life and draw your heart toward Him about in these last few minutes. Identify some kind of step that you're going to do in light of what you've been hearing today. Let's bow together for prayer. So, Father, there has been so many aspects of the story that you've allowed us to become reacquainted with. But some of us are still kind of lost in that storyline. And we pray for you who bring order out of chaos, that you would bring clarity out of confusion. Help us to get on your page. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.